Hello, welcome to another MLEX podcast. It's great to be with you. I'm James Paniki, the producer of MLEX's audio content. And as you know, over recent months, we've been using our podcast feed to bring you some additional audio material, interviews with key players that lie at the heart of MLEX's coverage. And today is no exception. Viera Jourova is a Czech politician and lawyer. She's the vice president of the European Commission. More recently, though, her work has become of particular relevance for MLEX because she's taken on the responsibility for files, including technology. That means that she's covering the Digital Services Act, the landmark legislation that, as a result of the tragic events unfolding in the Middle East, has taken on its first enforcement challenge. Then there's the AI Act, which is another initiative that has caught global attention. Finally, there's the question of what's in store for Yurova once her term as commissioner comes to an end next year. There was no shortage of ground for MLEX correspondents Matthew Newman and Sam Clark to cover when they sat down with the vice president in Brussels recently. Matthew Newman is MLEX's chief correspondent, writing about data protection, privacy and telecommunications. Sam Clark covers data privacy and security throughout Europe. Here's a recording of that interview, starting with the voice of Matthew Newman. Thank you very much, uh, Madam Yorova, to uh, agreeing to speak with us this morning. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. You have a lot of new files. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are vice president of the European Commission, mm-hmm. but also you are temporarily filling in on digital files. Uh, you are justice commissioner. Mm-hmm. And so we have several questions on burning issues. And, and the main one is uh, about the Digital Services Act. And this is a file that we're following for years, but we also now have the enforcement of it. So starting on the 25th of August, we have uh, the very large online platforms which must conform to these rules. And at the same time, we have the first test of the DSA, which is the war in Israel against Hamas. And so we've had a flood of very bad images, mm. disinformation, and we also have the platforms that have been warned by uh, Thierry Breton and also by you. You've met with some of the platforms. So my first question is really, um, what is the approach of the European Commission on uh, enforcement of the DSA? Um, Can you describe how these platforms should be reacting to this wave of terrible images Mm -hmm. and disinformation. Yeah, thank thank you very much for inviting me. Good morning. Uh, And thank you for this first question, which is, of course, very, very topical at this moment, because you rightly said the Digital Services Act, I will use the acronym DSA, which I hate to do, but I hate acronyms, but I will do that. So DSA came into force uh, in, in August for the very large online platforms where uh, is the the main battlefield when it comes to information war, to put it bluntly. So uh, what's happening now? Uh, I would say that uh, enforcement of DSA started, and the dialogue, political dialogue, continues. This is what's happening now. Uh, that's why the the platform, some of the platforms, already received letters which ask them how do they fulfill. Uh, their uh, obligations, which stem stemming from the Digital Services Act, and uh, so this is the enforcement line. 
which is done by the independent unit within the commission, very similar to what we are doing in competition policy, yeah, just to compare it. And at the same time, we cannot resign on the political dialogue with the platforms. That's why Thierry Breton sent them the letter. I am more uh, friendly with face-to-face uh, -face communication. Yeah, because when I can look into the eyes of the big platforms' bosses, I can have some feeling. For instance, the feeling whether these concrete people want to be abused for amplification and distribution of crime. Because terrorism... Terrorist content celebrating and glorifying terrorism, which is now the case uh, of glorifying what Hamas did, it is a crime according to our legislation. Hatred and uh, anti-Semitism, it's a crime. So I want to look into the eyes of the bosses and, uh, and receive answers from them. And I ask them an easy question. What are you doing? Are you uh, watching what's happening that the anti-Semitism, which is seen online in your networks, is spilling over to real, real life. And suddenly we see David stars on the houses of the Jewish people. So these are the questions which I ask as a politician and which might not be asked in the same way as the, the people who do the, in, I would say, dry and technical enforcement. And would you think you have a more of a holistic view on these platforms? Because you mentioned you know, hate speech and that's a crime, but there's also this code of conduct on hate speech and the code of practice mm -hmm. on disinformation. So these are things that are not necessarily directly in the DSA, but it's something that you have been looking in and been involved with for years. It's true that the ESA uh, is very clear when it comes to obligations of the platforms. Uh, one of them is do not spread crime. So this is, uh, this is very clear. But at the same time, we will always need the platforms to go extra mile and to maybe show, show some social responsibility. Speaking now in November 23, we can, we can see that the enforcement of the essay cannot bear fruits quickly. And we need urgent reaction of the platforms. Mm. That's why now we are combining this enforcement uh, procedure and this dialogue, these, these interviews I have, the, the, this communication. Because what I need them to do is to do it now, not after they are pushed by the enforcers to do something maybe in several times, uh, several months' time. Um, you, you've spoken a lot about the, the questions that you ask them. What can you say about the answers that they give? And can you say anything about any of the particular platforms? I think you've, you've said before that the conversations with... X or Twitter don't always go so well. What, what can you what can you say about the answers they give oh. you? Um, in fact, the answers are pretty similar yeah. <laughs> to each other. Uh, I always get uh, quite strong assurance that they are doing what we want them to do. Uh, I always receive a lot of quantitative evidence about the number of fake accounts, they removed the robots and the, the trolls, you know, these are uh, millions of cases. Also, I sometimes hear about the continuation of the effort to demonetize those who are 
uh, who want them to spread the content. So I receive answers in the in the way of we are doing what you want us to do. This is the quantifiable evidence. We are willing to do more. Yes, we are also shocked by what's happening. People are dying under the uh, attacks of, of terrorists. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, they are now facing very difficult situation. How to differentiate what is the celebration of Hamas and what is the message which wants to protect Palestinians. I don't want to get into these very sensitive topics, but, but we have to face it. We have to be precise in uh, differentiating uh, what co the content means. And it's not only the question for the platforms, it's also the question for the police when they see the demonstrations. Yeah. But you didn't ask about that. So the answers are always the same. We are doing what you want us to do. My questions are uh, always a little bit different. To TikTok, I inevitably have to ask about how they protect the children because they are their main clients. I inevitably have to ask YouTube, what are you doing against the horrible pictures which seek to receive admiration of killing? Because this is all about emotions. Mm. And... And I, I could continue. Uh, well, I, I had a, a debate with um, one of the bosses of, of X, uh, former Twitter. I asked them to join us again under the code of practice against disinformation. But what, what did you, they say? You, they, that they, were, they are considering uh, also the the uh, what what they mind are the demanding requirements which the code of practice is uh, imposing on them. So uh, it was uh, not promised. Uh, the promise was, yes, we will look at it again. But uh, what I, I wanted to react on, on, on you when you said that we had several codes. Yeah, we are over several years of hesitation whether to regulate digital space or not. I remember 2015, big discussion of the member states, Stop me if I'm too long, but no, I no, try to good, keep good. the topic. <laughs> Big discussion of the member states, whether to regulate or not. Hamlet's question, to regulate or not to regulate. Where is the freedom of speech? This is so fantastic thing. Internet where everybody can be the journalist, the judge, the I don't know what. I am also fascinated by this. It's, it can be used for many good things. But at the same time, I heard some member states telling me, there should be at least some gentleman agreement. And I had the member states who were telling me, well, without legally binding rules, we will not push them to behave. It was Germany and Austria, if you want a concrete answer. These two countries then came earlier with the legislation than the EU. And we, we had a very good contact and, and dialogue with, with those two countries because... I might surprise you, but I, I found it quite interesting that what we plan for the whole Europe might be first tested by individual states. Are you currently satisfied with these codes and these, you know, we, we have this idea that it's not hard uh, legislation. Mm. These, these are agreements, these are voluntary, uh, and I think you're reviewing the code of conduct on, on hate speech right yeah, now. Yeah, indeed. Well, we cannot continue just with the codes because it did not cover the whole digital scene. 
and it was just voluntary uh, agreement. But I would say that the code of conduct against hate speech has been replaced more or less by the Digital Services Act. The code of practice against disinformation, which is not necessarily illegal content, and we have to take different approach to disinformation. Mm. We don't want to kill the chance of people to say opinions. Mm. So well, we want the fact time to yeah. um, just transition to the European Media Freedom Act because mm-hmm. it's, it's dealing with this very Indeed. this very question. So you're in the middle of what we call trilogues, and you've had one significant one, and there's two more that are scheduled. The idea is to r- try to wrap this up before the end of the year. That's mm. the, the goal. You are well informed, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> if we get there, uh, it would be a major accomplishment uh, by the Spanish presidency. Uh, but we have some tricky questions about content moderation, mm-hmm. and the publishers are nervous because they think that there should be more room uh, to allow them to publish what they want to publish. And mm-hmm. then other people are saying, no, 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 this is an exception for media. Uh, if we do that, that's going to undermine the DSA. Mm-hmm. If you allow anybody to claim that they're media, then the disinformation will stay up on the platform for longer. And as you know, lies go around the world before Mm. the truth catches up. So are you uh, concerned in these talks, these kind of final negotiations about this whole, what what, what some people would claim is a media exception? I would be concerned if I would not see the solution. And I am am convinced we can find a good good solution uh, at the end. At this moment, the Digital Services Act says to the platforms, moderate the content, do it according to your terms of service, which has to be in co- compliance with the Digital Services Act. So this is this, this uh, scene set off or, and, and obligations of the, of the platforms to moderate without any regard to who is the author of the content. Here come the media. I think we owe to the media some level of protection of their content Here I speak about recognized media with good track record, uh, not in the sense of who they are promoting, but in the sense of ethical standards, transparency, ownership. And so we try to find the solution for this connection between the platforms and media in the way that the platforms will have to provide some special treatment to the media, to the recognized media, Mm. and in ideal situation not to touch at all their content. We have to find the right formulations for that, because the platforms are rightly asking me, how do we recognize the recognized media? Mm. It can be everybody who wakes up in the morning and decides to be the journalist. (laughs) This cannot work like that. So we have to find a solution which will protect the content of the, of the journalists uh, because uh, I don't think that the platforms should uh, play the upper hand. Um, just moving on to the next big priority for the EU, uh, and that's the AI Act, mm-hmm. so the Artificial Intelligence Act. Um, we've In the last three or four weeks, we've had a huge number of meetings, 
big political pressure to get something done before the end of the year. Um, the AI Act is is in its final stages, yes. so to speak. The 6th of December is should be the final trilogue. Um, so I was wondering from your point of view how things are going, if you can give us a, an update on what you think are some of the contentious points. Um, you know, we hear a lot about ChatGPT, mm. foundation yes. models. Yes. We hear a lot about facial recognition. These are the, the tricky questions that are usually at the end of these mm. discussions. But from your vantage point, um, what are the, some of the key issues that, that still need to be resolved? Yeah, this series of questions, uh, again, show how fascinating job I have. <laughs> being privileged to uh, work on such things. And this is a historical thing because AI Act uh, is the first of its kind globally. And it is, uh, if we make it, if we do it well, it might be followed by many others. We are watched by United States, Canada, Japan. You know, so I ju- just for the context, uh, what we, uh, what it means to work now on AI Act. On your question, there are uh, three things which need to be uh, resolved. You mentioned both uh, the use of AI in law enforcement field. Do we really want the facial recognition? technique being used in real time when we are walking the streets to be recorded and to to be recognized. I, I mean, uh, we are sensitive about spying, we Europeans. So let's put there some limit for that. And biometrics is, usage of biometrics is, is prohibited unless we enable it to be used by the states for security purposes. But this has to be discussed further, how the states for the security purposes and law enforcement could use it. The second thing is totally new situation. Chat GPT slash generative AI has totally revolutionized the AI and the world we live in. It gave us the question whether technology in itself can be dangerous. Because still ChatGPT and generative AI development, we believed that technology can be only dangerous in the hands of people. So high-risk uses, this was the core thing in the AI Act, that we define the high-risk use cases and then to require the technological developers to pay special attention to the risks and to the proper testing and, and, and licensing and so on. Suddenly, generative AI kind of uh, gives us this question, can the technology itself be dangerous? And our response is it might be under the condition of total, uh, being totally uncontrolled, if it gets out of the hands of people. And that's why we are drafting now the new chapter in AI Act for generative AI, where we uh, differentiate between big foundation models, which are then used by smaller systems. And uh, it's not easy work because many say, and I hear it everywhere I go, 
You didn't say it yourself, but how can you regulate something you don't know what it is? My answer is, well, it's true. But uh, if one day when we know what it is, it might be late. When you realize how slow the law is compared with the speed of technologies. So we do not think we should undertake this risk of slow reaction. The third contentious moment and point there is who will be enforcing the AI Act and how. But uh, we will manage that. Yes, indeed, 6th of December might be the day. Um, you mentioned uh, foundation models then, and my understanding of sort of where the, the debate is at currently and some of the challenges that are coming up is to do with uh, allowing European companies to innovate in this area. They don't want, it's the classic question... They don't want too many rules in order that they can innovate. How do you see that that balance being struck here specifically? Mm. Because it seems like the stakes are so big. There is potentially so much risk, but there's also potentially so much innovation. Mm. I will jump on your formulation, allowing the technologists to innovate. We don't want this to be happening, that they need the pouvoir They need to be allowed to innovate. We want them to innovate. We want them to invest in new paths of of for the technologies which are beneficial to the people. So it's not about the basic position that the innovators are not allowed. At the same time, we want to come with very clear requirements on testing before they place something on the market. And I remember the times around GDPR. Sorry, I will just for a while jump into Mm. the history. We like GDPR. (laughs) (laughs) It was exactly the same question. You will hinder innovations. And I was telling them, you will see the innovators will get used to the request of privacy by design. Now, the situation is similar. We want the technologists to get used to the request of security by design. We want secure and safe AI. And I think it's also in the in their interest that they test sufficiently and that they are sure themselves that they are not, sorry, opening the cage for the tiger. Mm. Um, <laughs> you've mentioned December the 6th, so that's the next uh, trilogue meeting and the likelihood or possibility that there'll be a a deal then. And you've also mentioned some of the other uh, sort of initiatives in other countries, like the US has done its executive order. Indeed. There was the big meeting in the UK recently, which I Mm -hmm. believe you went to. So timing is quite important, I think. There are initiatives going on all over the world. How important is it that you think the EU is the first? It might be important uh, for also our collaborators from all over the world, because I am more or less sure that we will do this right. And for others to have an example of what works and what might not work in some aspects, of course, nothing is perfect, but mm. I think that to, to lead as an example is important. And if I broaden it a, li- a little bit for on, on technologies as such, you know, there is a global competition, very harsh, I have to mention China. And in this competition, we desperately need that in the world of technologies, it will be democratic world which will win. That's why 
we connect with UK, with United States, with G7 and other G7 countries, Japan, Canada, in strong belief that we have to be rules makers. Because if we do this right on that platform of democratic countries, then the United Nations might get inspiration and push it further to the non-democratic world. Does it sound naive? I don't think it is so naive. We have to try, we have to invest efforts in that. Because if there will be big problems with artificial intelligence coming back to the really big tiger being let out of the, of the cage, it will be a global problem. It won't be a problem for Czechia or European Union or uh, Michigan. Um, I'd just like to wrap up with one final question you mentioned global competition and last week there was a a conference with the CEOs of some of the biggest telecom companies Mm -hmm. and the reason they I'm asking this question is because they were some of them at least were complaining about lack of attractiveness of Mm -hmm. EU compared to other blocks maybe China uh, maybe United States how would from your vantage point How do you ensure that the European Union remains an attractive place to invest in the telecom field, which is also high-tech and digital? Um, But they're they're worried. They're generally worried that there might be over-regulation, there might be failure to allow national mergers. What kind of message would you send to them to say, actually, we have your back, we know what your concerns are, And we're going to push forward, perhaps maybe not this commission, but maybe the next one with a digital network act. I don't know what you want to call it, but something that might help them. Mm. I will repeat what I said to the bosses of telecoms last week. Uh, Yes, you deserve support because we need you. We need connectivity. We need good networks in the EU also for the sake of uh, competitiveness, not only for the benefit of the European users. How to make it concrete, this support? We have to discuss further. This commission will not likely come with the legislative proposal. And uh, it's uh, not a secret that uh, the telecoms are complaining about unfair distribution of of the money. And we need them to invest we at this moment we measured the gap in investments for the networks uh, around 200 billion euro it's a lot of money so we take it seriously their claim that they are underinvested uh, or underfinanced so the investments cannot cannot lie on on their shoulders only so this is now under very intense discussion we will come still as this Sorry, old commission. I feel young, but the commission <laughs> seems to be old. <laughs> Next year, the last last year of our our possible action, we will uh, almost, I'm sure about that, <coughs> we will come with the white paper, which will outline the possible next steps, which will also start the data gathering and fact checking of how is how looks the situation on the market to also clarify the the gap 
of investments and, and many other things, so that the new commission is prepared for possible legislative action. So this is not just postponing the solution. We still don't have, we simply don't have time time to to uh, come with the legislation, but also we don't have sufficient evidence at this moment uh, whether, for instance, it needs such a radical decision regarding the redistribution of the shares. You may be with us uh, at the new commission, or you haven't made clear your plans? Or? Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I am happily leaving after a fascinating time. I am grateful for such uh, opportunity to, to be in the commission. Now it's for somebody else to come from Czechia. What's next for you? You know, I feel strong temptation to come back home and to bring back what I know, some contacts uh, to be useful for Czech academic sphere. Excellent. This is my plan. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for very well qualified and knowledgeable questions. <laughs> thank you. Viera Jurova is Vice President of the European Commission and the Transparency and Values Commissioner of the EU Executive. And we'll post a link to the analysis written by Matthew Newman and Sam Clark based on that interview at our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. The podcast is edited and produced by me, James Paniki. Thank you very much for your company today. I hope you can join us again for more regulatory affairs interviews over coming weeks. From everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. I'll see you again soon.